I like to start my sermons often with a question. And I want to start this sermon with a question. It's going to sound like a trick question. But it's not a trick question. It's a real question. And here's the question. Are all the doctrines in the Bible equally important? Now, if I, you know, were to sort of like put that on a quiz or something and pass it out, you know, or if, if I was in a Bible class and, and a professor put that on a quiz, you know, you might think, is he trying to, is he trying to trick me? What's, I don't know, what's the right answer? So, so let's kind of break it down a little bit and think about it like this. Are all the doctrines taught in the Bible important? Yes, 100%. All the doctrines taught in the Bible are important. God doesn't tell us stuff that's not important. Are all the doctrines taught in the Bible true? Yes, 100%, because the Bible is inspired by God. It's ultimately God's word, and it's not even possible for God to lie. Everything God says is true, so everything taught in the Bible is true. Everything taught in the Bible is important. But is everything taught in the Bible of equal importance? No. And the scripture tells us this, right? 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Paul says to the church at Corinth, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. In other words, Paul says, the doctrines that I taught you, the truths that I communicated to you, and said, as it were, these are the most important things. These are at the top of the list of things that you need to believe and that you need to know. Are the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and that all these things happen to Jesus just as God said they would in the Old Testament scriptures. All those things are of first importance, prime importance. And not everything can be of first importance. Is the doctrine of the millennium of equal importance with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? No, thankfully not. Right? If we had to have that figured out, if we had to know the right interpretation of the millennium in order to be saved, I'd be in trouble. Right? I suspect many of us would be in trouble. What would you think about Paul as a pastor, as a missionary, as an apostle? If he came to start a church, came to plant a church, came to gather a group of people and, and, and lead them to trust Jesus, and his first sermon was on spiritual gifts. Or on what the Bible says about alcohol. Now, is what the Bible says about alcohol important? Yeah. Does the Bible have true, important things to say about spiritual gifts? Yes. But is that where you start? Is that the thing that's most important? Are those things even of equal importance with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Of course not. And it's important for us to know that because oftentimes people will take things that are not first importance. They're second, third, fourth level of importance. And they elevate them to first importance and say, you have to agree with me on this or I don't even think you're saved. Or I don't even think you're a Christian. Or you're not really walking with God. Or you haven't really read the Bible. When those things are not that important, God does not put as much importance upon them as those people are putting upon them. That gets us in trouble. It creates unnecessary division. It leads to all kinds of problems. 
So it's important for us, and this is part of why we're doing this series, Walking Through the Apostles' Creed, it's important for us not only to know what the Bible says, but also to know what the Bible says about the things it says. Right? Like, this is of first importance. This is what you need to believe in order to be saved. And the Apostles' Creed puts the emphasis on those things that are of primary importance. That there's one God, the Father, He's the maker of heaven and earth. That we believe in Jesus Christ, who's the Lord, the Messiah, the only begotten Son of God. That we believe in the Holy Spirit. Right? That we believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, that He suffered, died on the cross, was buried and raised on the third day. That He ascended into heaven, that He's coming back to judge the living and the dead. That we believe in forgiveness of sin, that we believe in the resurrection of the body. These things are all of primary importance. But even among those truths, we're zeroing in this morning on the heart of the gospel, the heart of what is most important in the Bible. And that is the suffering, crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus. So let's talk about why those are central, how we know they are essential, and why they are so important for us. These are familiar truths, right? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We know these truths, but what do we need to make sure that we know about them? And and if somebody were to say, well, how do you know those are the most important things? You could go to 1 Corinthians 15, right, where we just saw. Paul said these are of first importance, but what else could you say? Well, when we talk about the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, we can point to the way the Gospels are written. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you think about how much time, how much space is taken up in each of those four Gospels by the events of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and where they're placed, it's obvious that those stories were written not mainly to tell us about Jesus' miracles. Those are in there. Those are important. Not mainly to tell us about Jesus' teaching. Those are in there, and those are important. But if you had Jesus' miracles and you had Jesus' teaching, but you didn't have the cross and you didn't have the resurrection, would we even call those books Gospels? No. You have good teaching. You have good events. But the Gospel, the good news, is that Jesus came to save us through His death and resurrection. Jesus' miracles point to what his death and resurrection accomplish. They don't mean just a whole lot by themselves. They are ways of showing this is what Jesus came to do. Because of his death and resurrection, one day there's going to be no more demonic oppression, no more disease, no more death. Jesus can raise the dead because one day he's going to be raised from the dead and then he's going to come back to raise all who believe him. That's why his resurrection of Lazarus matters. Because it points towards His resurrection and through His resurrection to our resurrection. Jesus' teaching is to tell us who He is, what He came to do, and how we are supposed to live if we are going to follow Him. But we're not going to follow Him forever if He claimed that He was the Savior, the Messiah, who was going to die and rise, but then didn't die and rise. 
There's no gospel. There's not even any gospel stories, gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We wouldn't have those if it weren't for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So they're of central importance in the gospel stories themselves. And Jesus draws attention to them over and over, even before they happen. So Jesus told his disciples on multiple occasions exactly what would happen to him. After Peter made his famous confession... Jesus, you are the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. Matthew tells us from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's Matthew 16, 21. As soon as Peter said, you're the Messiah, Jesus said, okay, let me tell you what kind of Messiah I am. This is what's going to happen to the Messiah. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And then I'm going to be raised on the third day. He said it again in the next chapter, Matthew 17, 22 and 23. It says, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. The closer Jesus gets to his death, he gets even more specific So in Matthew 20, verses 17 and 19, he says again, it says, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Over and over again, Jesus told his disciples, this is what's going to happen to me. This is where we're headed. This is what is coming. Because this is important. I need you to understand it. I want you to be prepared for it. I don't want you to think that it has caught me by surprise. And I don't want you to be caught by surprise. Even the burial of Christ gets special emphasis as Jesus prepares to go to the cross. In Matthew 26, it says, Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined the table. You probably remember that story, and you remember the disciples were upset about that. right? They protested. This is, this is wasteful. But do you remember what Jesus said in response? It says, in pour, this is what Jesus said. He said, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. And Jesus knew where he was going. He knew what was happening. He knew what he was about to endure. And in that moment, of that woman pouring out that ointment upon him, He knew, this is about my death, this is about my burial. He was prepared for it. And, not only was he prepared for it, but the Old Testament scriptures should have prepared the disciples for it. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he talked to his disciples, and it says in Luke 24 that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. He helped them see, look, this was in the Old Testament. 
Right? Even though Jesus tried to prepare them for it, right, told them about it, they were still kind of caught off guard. Right? They still didn't think it was going to happen. And even though they seemed to have some understanding of Jesus' impending death, they definitely didn't grasp what he was saying about the resurrection. But Jesus, after the fact, says, look, this was in the Old Testament all along. It was clear that this is what had to happen. Well, where in the Old Testament did it tell us that had to happen? Does the Old Testament make a big deal out of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Or is that just a big deal in the New Testament? That's a big deal in the Old Testament, too. For example, in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 53, it says, prophesying about the death of the Messiah, it says, He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We see that in his interaction with Pilate, right, that we read earlier in John 19. Jesus doesn't answer every question he gets asked, even as he's about to go to the cross. Isaiah goes on and says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And he even talks about his burial. He says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. His suffering, his death, he was cut off from the land of the living, even his burial, all of that was spoken of in advance in the Old Testament in Isaiah 53. And then in Psalm 22, David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, I'm poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Does that not call to mind? When Jesus died, as we read in John 19 earlier, and he was pierced with the spear, and blood and water came out, demonstrating that he had already died before they came to break the legs of the others. He says, my strength is Dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones, which also sounds like what John emphasizes, that none of his bones were broken in fulfillment of what the Scripture said about the Passover lamb. Jesus died as the final perfect Passover lamb. He says, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. All of this was predicted, prophesied, pointed to in the Old Testament. It didn't catch Jesus by surprise. It shouldn't have caught his disciples by surprise. And it's central not only in the story of Jesus in the gospel accounts, but it's central even in the Old Testament as well. All through the scriptures, all through the Old Testament, God is preparing his people for this moment, for these events. But why do they matter? Why does it matter that Jesus died, for example? Is Jesus just a tragic figure, a good man who suffered at the hands of evil men and ultimately died? Somebody we should pity, somebody we should feel sorry for? No. Jesus came for this very purpose. 
his death was not a tragedy in the sense of it being some kind of accident or mistake or some, you know, just sad event that happened to a good person. It was terrible and tragic, but it was purposeful. It was intentional. It was deliberate. It was not outside of Jesus' control. It was what he came to do. Right? We're told from the very beginning in the Gospel of Matthew why Jesus is coming. When the angel speaks to Joseph, as we saw last week, and told him about the son who will be born of Mary, the angel says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And anybody who knows the Old Testament knows there's only one way that sin can be dealt with. And that's through sacrifice. That's through the shedding of blood. Jesus was born to die. Born to shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. He told his own disciples in Matthew 20, 28, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His life was not tragically taken from him. His life was deliberately laid down for us. Given up in payment for our sin so that we might be set free. That's why it matters that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Why he was crucified. Why even he was buried. Why include the burial in there? When Paul says these things are of first importance... Christ died for our, for our sin in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. Why is the burial in there? Because he really died. He didn't just sort of like appear to be dead for a few minutes and then, oh, he's back alive again and we call that resurrection. No, he's dead in the tomb. Not raised till the third day. It wasn't an almost death, a mostly death. He really, truly died, was buried, and then he really, truly rose. He really, truly rose, and the resurrection matters just as much as the crucifixion of Jesus. Because if there is no resurrection, the crucifixion doesn't even matter. I listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, vain, fruitless, worthless. Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If there's no resurrection, the cross did not achieve your forgiveness, is what Paul is saying. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, everything else falls apart. The resurrection of Christ and the crucifixion of Christ cannot be separated. You can't have one without the other and then mean what the Bible says that they mean. The crucifixion without the resurrection would not mean much of anything. It would be just a tragedy. But with the resurrection, it becomes clear that Jesus' death was not some sad event, but it was a purposeful event. Sad and tragic, again, in some sense, yes, but deliberate, purposeful, meaningful, 
and then vindicated through Jesus' resurrection. Jesus himself said that he was doing all of this intentionally in John 10, 17, and 18. Listen, Listen to what Jesus says. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. That's why when Pilate says, why won't you answer my questions? Don't you realize I have the authority to put you to death? That Jesus basically says, you don't have as much authority as you think you do. The only authority you have has been given to you. You don't have authority over my life. I have authority over my life. I'm laying it down and I will take it up again. This is predicted in the Old Testament as well. Peter talks about this in the first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when he's preaching about the death and resurrection of Jesus. He says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, remember David's in the Old Testament, and Peter's going to quote Psalm 16, one of David's psalms. And David says in this psalm, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now what is that psalm about? What is David singing? What is David celebrating in that psalm? Now here's what Peter says about that psalm. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, that psalm's not about David. When it talks about not abandoning my soul to Hades, not letting your Holy One see corruption, guess what? David's body saw corruption. His tomb is right over there, Peter's saying. So he says, Peter goes on, being therefore a prophet, David was not only a king, but also a prophet, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath that he would set one of his descendants, one of David's descendants on his throne, He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Peter's saying that psalm's not about David. That psalm is ultimately about Jesus. Jesus is the one whose body did not see corruption because his body was not in the tomb more than three days. I've seen him, Peter says. These other disciples up here with me, we've seen him. He is alive. He was risen from the dead. We didn't just see his spirit. We didn't just see some sort of, you know, 
illusion or apparition of Jesus. His body is no longer in the tomb. David's body still in the tomb. Jesus' body is not in the tomb. And God told us in advance through David that this is what would happen. And Paul wants us to know why this matters. Why does the resurrection matter? The, the cross matters, right? Because without it, there's no forgiveness. Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Why does the resurrection matter? Well, Paul says in Romans 4.25 that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. That's what we would expect, right? Delivered up, he died for our trespasses, for our sins. And he says, raised for our justification. Now, our justification has two parts to it. Justification means your sin is forgiven, and it means you are declared righteous in God's sight. And Paul says that would not have happened if Jesus had not been raised from the dead. If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, your sins would not be forgiven, and God would not have looked down upon you and said, you are justified, you are righteous, you are holy now in Christ because of Christ. Without the resurrection, we don't have that. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us a whole litany of things that would not be true if Christ had not been raised from the dead. Now listen to what he says. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So if, the, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, we'd all just close up shop and go home. And I need to find a different job. Because there's no point in preaching and there's no point in you believing if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. He says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God... Because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So if, there's, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, Paul says, all of us apostles are false witnesses. And not just false witnesses, but false witnesses about God. We're not good people. We're people you shouldn't even be listening to if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. He goes on and says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, as we heard earlier. Then he says, Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, those who have died in Christ, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, they just died. They didn't go into the presence of the Lord. They're not going to be raised from the dead one day. They just perished. If there's no resurrection. And so he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because we believe lies, we have false hopes, and every sacrifice we've made in order to follow Christ has not been worth it because Christ is dead just like David. These are not inconsequential things. Paul doesn't say, if you like Jesus and you think he's great, but you don't think he rose from the dead, that's all right. Let's just all celebrate Jesus. Now, he says, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, let's all close up shop and go home because this is a waste of time. But he says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, not only has Jesus been raised from the dead, but Jesus' resurrection is just the beginning. 
It's just the first fruits. It's just the first handful of the harvest. The full harvest is coming when Christ returns. So because Christ has been raised from the dead, our faith is not futile. It is not in vain. Our faith instead connects us to the living Christ, the crucified and risen Savior. And because we are connected by faith to the crucified and risen Savior, our sins are forgiven. And because our sins are forgiven, we have hope beyond this life. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have not perished. They have entered the presence of the Lord where they await His return, just like us, so that together, at Christ's return, we will all be raised bodily from the dead to live with the resurrected Christ in resurrected bodies in a new heavens and a new earth. But that's only true. And that's only possible. Because Jesus really did die and really did rise. Nothing, nothing eclipses the importance of these doctrines. Nothing surpasses these events insignificance. Without them, there is literally no Christianity, no gospel, no hope. But because of them, because Christ suffered for us, because Christ died in our place, because Christ was buried, because He was raised on the third day, and the Scriptures have been fulfilled, Jesus has been vindicated, our salvation has been secured, and our hope is not only alive, it is guaranteed. And that hope, that salvation, that life, that forgiveness is given to everyone who trusts in Christ. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to deserve it. Be worthy of it. The whole thing starts by realizing you're not worthy of it. But when you realize you're not worthy and God did this anyway and you just cry out in faith and say, God have mercy on me, a sinner. God God forgive me. I, I confess, I believe Jesus is Lord. He died, He rose. The Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that doesn't just mean you have your sins forgiven now. It means you have the hope of eternal, resurrected life with Christ because He died and rose again. Let's pray.